of this evening's message, challenge accepted, has a double meaning, as I hope to explain further momentarily. So let us read God's word here in Acts 5. Acts 5, the verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of God fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it? that you have contrived this deed in your heart. You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And this is the word that I may preach to you this evening. Acts, as you probably know, is the biblical record of the unstoppable progress of the gospel. We have the gospel, you might say, in the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Acts tells us about how this Gospel of of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been proclaimed and lived out in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus continues to progress into the world. And this progress of the Gospel is unstoppable. That's really what Acts is a record of. A quick summary of the first four chapters of Acts goes like this. Jesus has ascended his throne in heaven. And from there, Jesus, the ascended Jesus, pours out his mighty spirit. It's what we call 
Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In one day, the number of believers grows to 3,000 there in the city of Jerusalem. And from that day on, we're told in Acts 2, verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Well, you know what happens where God's mighty Spirit is at work. You can be sure that Satan is close at hand. Satan is determined to destroy what God is building. Satan launches his counterattack, his challenge, we might say, as soon as the Spirit came upon the church. Satan's first attempt to get in the way of the gospel, to throw the church off course, was through physical persecution. Remember what Luke tells us in chapters 3 and 4. Peter and John heal a crippled beggar in the temple courts. and The the temple establishment doesn't like this. So they gang up on Peter and John. They physically oppose Peter and John. They take them into custody overnight. The temple police, we might call them. Arrest them. Put them in prison. And the next day, these temple police tell the apostles that they're no longer allowed to speak to anyone about the name of Jesus. They bully and threaten the apostles. Well, this tactic of Satan fails. Peter and John are released. And the gospel of Jesus is still preached. So Satan tries something different. It doesn't work to throw God's work off through physical violence and persecution. So Satan tries something else. He attempts to destroy the church from within through moral corruption and compromise, through through outright lying and stealing. Where there's light, there's also a shadow. Where God builds his church, the devil plans a teardown. Where the divine farmer sows good seed, you know what the enemy does? He sows terrors. He sows weeds and thistles. You see, that's what's going on here in Acts 5. Satan has observed how how the Holy Spirit has been doing amazing, mighty things. Satan observes how the fellowship of the church is, is growing and increasing and becoming stronger. How the gospel is progressing and Satan doesn't like that. So he tries to shatter the fellowship of the Holy Spirit through deception. He tries in another way to stop the progress of the gospel. 
And he does that from within the church. He does that by filling Ananias and Sapphira's heart so that they commit a serious sin. Now, what exactly is their serious sin? Well, from outward appearances, Ananias' deed is is actually much like Barnabas's. You remember what Barnabas had done. We saw that last time. Barnabas had done something very commendable. Something that the Holy Spirit commends to us as a good thing to do at the end of Acts 4. He sold the field he owned and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And on the surface, it seems that Ananias and Sapphira are doing exactly the same thing. Notice how Luke puts it. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Like Barnabas, so it seems. Like so many others, they decide to sell property and give the money to the church for the care of the needy. At that time, more people were doing this. Nothing unusual about that. But to understand what's actually going on A comparison may be helpful. Remember what happened with Cain and Abel. For the onlooker, it looked like they were both doing the same sort of thing. They both offered a sacrifice to God. They were both going through the same motions, so to speak. But God knew what was going on in their hearts. Do you remember what God's evaluation was? Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God. But Cain's sacrifice was not. God saw his heart. God warned Cain that he saw sin crouching at the door. And something similar is happening here. Ananias seems to be doing the same thing as Barnabas has just done. They both seem like generous, caring fellows. But God sees both their hearts. And he knows the difference. Now what exactly is Ananias' sin? Well, it's not that Ananias keeps back part of the money for himself, per se. He has a right to do that. People are not required in the early church to sell their property and give the money to the poor. That's a voluntary matter. We saw that last time. No one told Barnabas he had to sell that property and bring the money to the apostles. He did it of his own volition. He wanted to do it. He chose to do that. 
So what is Ananias' sin? What's this? That he keeps back part of the money from the sale while pretending to give it all. Ananias claims that he's giving the whole amount of the sales to of the sale of the land to the apostles. He pretends to be more generous than he actually is. In this way, he dedicates or consecrates that money as the Lord's. But then he holds part of it back for himself. He misappropriates it. He steals from God. And in this way, he deceives the apostles. And he tries to deceive God himself. We know, of course, on the face of it, it's clearly something wrong. This is also something that God had had very clearly forbidden in the Old Testament. Remember what it says in Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 to 23, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. In other words, if you make a vow to do something, do it. And do exactly what you have vowed. If you make a promise... Do what you have promised. Do exactly what you have promised. And if you don't intend to do it, don't make the promise. Don't make the vow. See, if Ananias had not promised, committed, or vowed the whole amount of the sale to the Lord, he wouldn't have been guilty. But because he vowed the entire amount but then decided afterward to keep some of it for himself, to make himself look good, but then to give in to his greed. That is his sin. Notice how Peter describes the sin. He calls it a lie. He charges Ananias with lying in fact. He says, You have lied to the Holy Spirit, verse 3. Notice notice what Peter says there in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Ananias lies to the Holy Spirit. Ananias lies to God himself. You see what's happening here? Remember, Pentecost has just happened. Instead of letting the Holy Spirit fill his heart, 
Instead of letting the Holy Spirit who has just been poured out at Pentecost fill his heart, he let Satan enter his heart. What a contrast with what Luke has just reported in chapter 4. Remember what Luke says in chapter 4, verse 31? He said that the believers were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. In other words, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they used their mouths to speak God's Word, to speak truth. But now here is Ananias. He lets Satan in. And he doesn't speak the truth boldly, but he speaks the lie boldly. Ananias has committed a serious sin. And therefore, he receives a severe punishment. He falls down and dies. This is a very somber story, isn't it? Imagine that happening among us. Someone comes in and the pastor admonishes that person and on the spot that person falls down and dies. The young men of the congregation come forward, wrap up his dead body, take him out, and bury him. There's no way to make this story seem less serious or to brush it aside, is there? That's not where it ends. The same thing happens to his wife a few hours later. Luke tells us already in verse 2 that Ananias lied about the money with his wife's full knowledge. She was in on it with him. But Peter gives her a second chance. He says in verse 8, Sapphira, tell me whether you sold the land for this much. And she keeps up the charade, not realizing that her husband has just died for it. Yes, she says, that is the price. She says, a bald-faced lie. And she too falls down at his feet and dies. Wow. Now, people have wondered who in this story gives out the punishment. In other words, is it Peter? 
or God? In other words, does, does Peter strike Ananias and Sapphira down with the miraculous powers that the Lord has given him? I mean, after all, he had the power to, to do miracles, as we know from earlier in Acts. Or is this a direct act of God? Some explainers, thinking that this judgment is far more severe than justified, like hitting a fly with a sledgehammer, suggest that it must be Peter's doing. In this way, they try to exonerate God by blaming Peter. In other words, this is a pretty severe punishment, a little bit over the top, so it's probably just Peter losing his temper or something like that. Well, everything in the Spirit-inspired text points to their death as an act of God. Notice how Peter says to Ananias and also later to Sapphira, you have not lied to man but to God. This is, this is not about Peter being offended because they've sinned against him or the apostles. This is an offense against God himself. Later he says to Sapphira too, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Lord? Indeed, this judgment on Ananias and Sapphira was like the judgment that God had brought on Achan as we read in Joshua 7. We read that too and we think, wow, that's pretty heavy stuff. Secretly, we may think, that's a little over the top, don't you think? Well, let's think that through for a moment. Achan, too, had stolen something that belonged to the Lord and then lied about it. And as a result, he was struck down and killed by the Lord himself. Remember what happened sometime earlier to Nadab and Abihu when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. We read in Leviticus 10 verse 2, Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now it is striking, isn't it? That when you look closely at these three punishments, there's a common thread. In each one of them, God is bringing about something new. There's got to be something to that. Let's think this through for a moment. In the case of Nadab and Abihu, They had just been ordained together with their father Aaron as priests in God's sanctuary. In other words, the priesthood was new. And God's sanctuary was new. So God was sending a strong message to his people that the tabernacle was holy and that they couldn't do whatever they wanted in his sanctuary. 
Something similar with Achan. In the case of Achan, God was bringing his people into the promised land. Again, something new is happening here in the history of redemption. They needed to understand, God's people needed to understand that everything they had, including the land that God was giving them, was God's. Not theirs to do with whatever they wanted. It belonged to God. And God's people were not allowed to act as if it was their own. Now in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, God is again doing a new thing. He is setting up the church as his new temple in Christ. And his people need to realize that this new temple is as holy as the Old Testament sanctuary. The church is the house of God, the temple that God is building. And so God sends a strong message to his people by putting Ananias and Sapphira to death. And what God is saying to his people is this. Yes, I've poured out my Holy Spirit on you. I am making you into a new temple. But don't do unholy things in my presence. Don't be unholy. Don't lie. Don't steal. You are the temple of the Holy God. Be holy. I recently heard the very moving testimony of a man whom God finally set free from his lifelong fear. He must be in his maybe late 60s, mid to late 60s, early 70s. And he had this lifelong fear from the time he was 10 years old that he had committed the unforgivable sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus says about that in Mark 3. He says, I tell you the truth, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Now you probably understand why I bring this up in the context of this story of Ananias and Sapphira. You probably have the question that I have. Did Ananias and Sapphira commit the so-called unforgivable sin? The eternal sin? Did Ananias and Sapphira blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and as a result suffer eternal punishment. Now that's a weighty question. So I think we have to tread very, very carefully here. 
because we are dealing with the holy things of God. In the first place, I think we need to remember this, that judgment belongs to God. It's not for us to decide. It's not even for preachers to decide the eternal destiny of anyone, including Ananias and Sapphira. In the second place, though, Luke doesn't actually say that they committed the unforgivable sin. He makes no comment like that. Yes, it is clear that they committed a very serious sin. And especially for the sake of Christ's church, God clearly wanted to send a strong message about the seriousness of that sin. But just as with Achan and his family, or Nadab and Abihu, so with Ananias and Sapphira, we can't conclude from the punishment that they received that they were eternally condemned. Let's take a moment to think this through in the light of Scripture, in light of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Isn't it true that there are many more people who have deserved to die on the spot like Ananias and Sapphira? Like Adam and Eve? Like Moses and Aaron? Like David? Even Peter himself, who pronounces this scathing judgment against Ananias and Sapphira, Surely he knows very well that he deserved to die on the spot when he denied Christ three times, no less. And if we're honest with ourselves, can't the same be said about you and me? Isn't that true? When it comes right down to it that each one of us deserves to die right on the spot. How many times haven't we committed very offensive sins? Whether that was publicly or privately. And we know very well that we deserved to die. God decided to punish Ananias and Sapphira this way, you see, in order to make a clear point about sin to all his children. Ananias and Sapphira committed a serious sin and they received a severe punishment. And in this early church happening, there's a sober lesson for us. A whole series of lessons, actually. Let me go over them quickly. The first lesson is this. 
Judgment begins at the household of God. This is what Peter later writes in his first letter, 1 Peter 4, verse 17. God will not turn a blind eye to wickedness, even, or should I say especially, when it happens within his church, his family. God was making very clear to his church that his standard of holiness must in no way be diminished with the passing away of the old and the coming of the new. The old temple was a holy place, and so is the new temple. God was a holy God in the Old Testament, and He is still a holy God. The second lesson is this. Fellowship is broken by falsehood. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 25. He says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In other words, when we lie, when we speak falsehood, the unity of the body is put at, put at risk. It's endangered. John says something similar in his first letter. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. There's a third lesson. And that is that church discipline is necessary. The Holy Spirit is making very clear here that sin must be confronted and dealt with in the church. It cannot be brushed aside. When sin comes to light, it needs to be called what it is. And it needs to be dealt with in the way that Jesus would have us deal with it. And I'm not not saying that that's an easy thing to do. But it must be be done. And the fourth lesson is this. We must resist the devil when he tempts us to sin. Both Peter and James say something similar about this in their letters. James says in in chapter 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. In other words, Satan never exercises irresistible power. We often like to blame the devil. The fact of the matter is that if the devil gets his way with us, it's because we've let him. And that's also an encouragement, isn't it? When we resist the devil, God promises us we will stand firm. 
When we resist the devil, he will flee from us. It's that simple. Satan is not stronger than God. The one who is in us, God and his spirit, is greater than the one who is in the world, Satan. There's a fifth lesson. Never should we agree agree to do something evil, even, and perhaps especially, especially not, with those closest to us. Ananias' wife, Sapphira, should have stood up to her husband the moment he suggested the idea. Like Abigail, Nabal's wife, Sapphira should have seen her husband for the fool he was and resisted him. He said, Ananias, what a stupid idea. We're not doing that. Husbands, listen to your wives. Let me mention two more very important lessons. In the first place, when sin is dealt with among God's people, God will bless them again. Again, like I said earlier, we came to church to hear the good news. Yes, there is also good news here in Acts 5, even though this is a difficult, hard story. What is the good news here? Well, look at what happens in the following verses. We read in verse 12 that the apostles continue to perform miraculous signs and wonders. We read in verse 16 that that many are healed. We read in verse 13 that the apostles are highly respected among the general public. In fact, we read in verse 14 that more than ever, isn't this fascinating? More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. This is good news. Even this hard story of Ananias and Sapphira, has good news for us. In the second place, and in conclusion, thanks be to God for His mercy in Jesus Christ. We can breathe a sigh of relief at the end of this service because we know the mercy and love of God. Yes, sometimes he punishes us in this life. Sometimes his punishments are even very severe and we feel the weight of them. Yet, those who believe in him are saved from eternal death. May we all come to him. Yes, it's true. 
We all deserve to, to, to die. We all deserve to die on the spot. But the good news is that Christ has died for us. He took our place so that we might be forgiven all our sins and so that we might live with him eternally. Let us pray. Lord, we give thanks to you for the mighty things that you have done, for the mighty things that you are still doing today and promise to do until your, com- your kingdom comes on earth. Thank you for your mercy to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We confess that we have all deserved to die on the spot on many different occasions in our lives. Thank you that you sent Jesus, your Son, to die in our place. We thank you that we have been buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. Amen.